Stu Does America. Go to StuDoesMerch.com. StuDoesMerch.com. Get your anyone but Biden 2024 merch uh, right now. You can use the promo code Stu10. You'll save 10%. If you're watching on YouTube, now's the time to like the video right now and subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. We appreciate you doing all those things. Chris Rufo is going to be here to break down America's latest cultural revolution. Canada is going even more certifiably insane. I have a news roundup that you won't believe, but we start by doing presidential crimes. Yes, it's everywhere in the news. There's crimes that have been committed by the former president. And that's what they want you to focus on today, isn't it? That's really what they want you to know. Uh, the indictment uh, takeaways from the Hill, there's five of them. Well, should we go through them real quick so we can get th through this pain as quickly as possible? The charges are grave, says, uh, says the Hill. Uh, okay, uh, sure. Uh, Smith is pr pressing hard to prove that Trump knowingly lied. This is a key part of this. If you really look at the indictment, what you find is it's dependent on trying to figure out that Trump intentionally lied about this. Essentially, he knew he had lost the election and he went and did all this stuff uh, anyway, tried to convince people to change votes and everything else, which, you know, you could understand how that would be a crime, uh, I suppose. However, uh, does anyone believe that's Donald Trump? I mean, I, like the evidence presented to say, to tell you that Donald Trump knew he lied was not Donald Trump saying, look, I know I lost this election, but I'm going for it anyway. Or, you know, we didn't get enough votes, but if we can get these people to fraudulently change the votes, then we'll, we'll be able to stay in the White House. They don't have anything like that in there. It's like, well, Mike Pence told him that he didn't win. Well, he doesn't believe, he didn't believe Mike Pence. Oh, well, Bob Barr told him that he, uh, Barr told him that he wasn't, he didn't win. Well, he didn't believe him, right? He believed Rudy Giuliani and he believed Sidney Powell. Now, look, you can go uh, and fairly criticize uh, the uh, possibility of believing uh, their arguments in that period if you wish. And look, you have that opportunity uh, because you're going to be able to vote for him and decide it that way. Also, there was another opportunity when they tried to in, uh, impeach him on these exact same charges. Um, didn't work out last time. It may not work out this time. Um, it's sort of a silly argument to be able to say, though, that Donald Trump believed he had lost. We all know how Donald Trump uh, thinks. And if you I mean, you can read this in his own books. You go back to uh, you know, Art of the Deal. It's, there's there's stuff like this in here where, you know, Trump is a believer in sort of the power of positive thinking. Right. Like when you believe something, it will come true if you believe it. Essentially, you have to be positive. You have to convince yourself of these things so you can be a a successful salesman of the idea that you're trying to come up with. It's how he campaigned. It's how he did his real estate deals back in the day. And, you know, it's quite clear that at the very beginning, and there's plenty of evidence to support this, he was disappointed he lost. And over time, people that he trusted came to him and told him that he won and eventually won him over. Uh, that's what it seems like to me. All the you know internal evidence that we've seen supports that. We have no real evidence of Donald Trump saying, look, I know I lost, but... And unless they have that, it's going to be really hard to convict him on this stuff if you're depending on his state of mind to win these charges. Uh, again, this is a weaker indictment than even some people on, uh, that, that don't like Trump. Um, uh, people on the left are even admitting, like, okay, this isn't exactly, we were kind of hoping for a slam dunk here. You might be able to convict him on this. Obviously, in a D.C. court with a, with a very friendly to the left judge that was Obama appointed and has, you know, really gone after all the January 6 people. You have a good chance of convicting him, but this is no slam dunk legally. Um, the Trump response has ignited its own controversy is takeaway number three from the Hill. Uh, a lot of this has to do with the fact that he said Nazi Germany. <laughs> now, look, when you say Nazi, as as we found out occasionally, 
on this particular network and from one of many of our lovable hosts. Occasionally, when you bring up Nazi Germany, people get a little upset. Uh, he did. He said this statement contended his statement contended that the legal probes that the former president faces were, quote, reminiscent of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Now, you can say take that as you want. Right. Obviously, he's in the middle of this and he's the target of all of this. And so you can understand he feels really persecuted by this. You might not agree. I don't care, honestly. Uh, but I will say. What do dictators do in situations like this? Like, what would a dictator do if let's for, take this into any other country? You don't have to. It doesn't have to be Nazi Germany. Just someone with universal power that has an opposing force, the leading opposing force politically. What do they do in those situations? They're constantly trying to throw those people in prison. This is what happens in uh, you know third world countries, uh, in you know Africa or South America. But when the opponent comes up, rises up, what do they do? They try to throw them in prison. They get them out of the way. And like, shouldn't it always be a part of the coverage when we're talking about this story that we mentioned that Joe Biden is trying to throw his political opponent in prison? Like, doesn't that always have to be the case? Remember, you know, some of the stuff is like, I, I can understand how it's tough to do this if, you, if you're trying to be honest, because you could say, well, then a presidential candidate could never be thrown in prison, right? Because he's always somebody's opponent. And you could argue, okay, well, you know, you can never, these people can't be immune from the law. And I get that. But like, they went and they tried to impeach him immediately, right? When he was still in the office of the presidency, they tried to impeach him within a couple of weeks of this. They said they had enough. Then they waited two years to appoint a special counsel. Why? Why did they wait two years to do that? Why are they doing all these charges now? I think it's fair for Trump to complain about this. I think anybody would. I mean, can, can you I mean, can you even imagine what would happen if they had indicted Joe Biden three times in 2020? What would that look like? What, what would the media look like under that circumstance? It's just it's incredible. I, it has to be mentioned every single time because it's so fundamental to the story to give you context of what we're talking about here, which is one leading presidential candidate of one party and his apparatus trying to throw these, his main opponent in prison. That is the fundamental outline of the story. And it must be uh, highlighted every single time that this is talked about. Trump's GOP rivals are split on the response. And I, that's sort of true. Another Hill takeaway here. Let me give you a taste of this. this is Ron DeSantis. As president, I will end the weaponization of government, replace the FBI director, and ensure a single standard of justice for all Americans. While I've seen reports, I have not read the indictment. I do, though, believe we need to enact reform so that Americans have the right to remove cases from Washington, D.C. to their home districts. Washington, D.C. is a swamp and is unfair to, has to, have, to stand trial before a jury that is reflective of that swamp swamp mentality. One of the reasons our country is in decline is the politicization of the rule of law. No more excuses. I will end the weaponization of the federal government. Um, Mike Pence uh, went, is, went the other way here. And look, you know, Mike Pence doesn't have a great argument. He's does not doing very well here. Um, this is probably the way he should go, I guess, if you want to try to win the nomination. But it's going to be a hard sell. Uh, here in the Republican primary, he says today's indictment serves as an important reminder. Anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. Now, of course, I agree with that tweet wholeheartedly. That's true. If you put yourself above the Constitution, you should not be president of the United States. But voters don't seem to see uh, this being an example of that. Pence goes on to say our country is more important than one man. 
Our Constitution is more important than any one man's career. On January 6th, former President Trump demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. I chose the Constitution, and I always will. I and mean, you can beat up on Pence quite a bit. Obviously, our system does not allow for the vice president to overrule the election. If it does, we've got some problems coming with Kamala Harris. And I got to say, if they do that here in 2024, I am going to be complaining about it quite loudly. Uh, that's not going to be something I'm going to be like, ah, I guess it's OK. I mean, you know, some people made the argument that uh, Mike Pence could have done it. Look, it doesn't make any sense to have a system of elections where the vice president can overrule the election when they feel like it's, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and Pence is right on that point. Um, but uh, that's not helping him in the primary. <laughs> you know, he's going to be at three percent or less. This probably hurts him in the primary. Might help him with the mainstream media and the way they react, but not going to help his presidential campaign. Kevin McCarthy came out and said, you know, talked about Hunter receiving money from China. President Biden spoke with Hunter's business associates over 20 times. Biden's DOJ tried to secretly give Hunter broad immunity and admitted the sweetheart deal was unprecedented. And just yesterday, a new poll showed President Trump is without doubt, a doubt Biden's leading political opponent. Everyone in America should see what's going to come next. The DOJ's attempt to distract from the news and attack the frontrunner of the Republican nomination, President Trump. House Republicans will continue to uncover the truth about Biden, Inc. and the two-tiered system of justice. And again, I'll say this. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's understandable to be skeptical that the House would do anything correct when it comes to uh, these investigations when it came down to it. So far, it seems like they've done a pretty good job. Uh, I'm glad the Republicans ha got the power in the House to be able to do these types of things. It's sort of the only thing they really got out of that election other than just being able to uh, shoot down the worst instincts of the Biden administration legislatively, which is very important as well. Uh, the other big, big benefit you get are these investigations. And so far, we've learned a lot. I mean, we have learned a lot from this. Uh, now, to McCarthy's point here, when you're, you're talking about uh, the ability of the DOJ and the Biden apparatus to go after Trump, I mean, look what they've set up here. I, I mean, I don't know. At some point, you have to sit back and say, this is impressive. It's impressive what they're doing. Now, it's totally illegal and unconstitutional and against uh, the, the, the basic tenets of democracy, but it's well planned. It really is. Trump's courtroom calendar clashes with the 2024 campaign. This is incredible to look at step by step. This is from Axios. So you have the first debate here on uh, August 23rd. And then uh, the Trump org civil fraud trial starts a few weeks after that on October 2nd. Then on January 15th, 2024, you have the Iowa caucuses. And on the same day, the E. Jean Carroll civil defamation suit. Then on January 29th, the pyramid scheme class action suit is in play. There are, of course, uh, primaries going on you know, in New Hampshire and South Carolina in between here. Then you have Super Tuesday on March 5th, 2024. Then, 20 days after that, the state criminal hush money suit begins. Then uh, the classified documents trial starts on May 20th. And then July 15th is a Republican National Convention. So they have all of this legal pr pr prosecution going on right in the middle of him trying to campaign. He's going to be flying back and forth between, like, Iowa campaign stops and trial, uh, you know, civil litiga litigation. Uh, all of this stuff is, it's hard to believe it was not planned intentionally to fall this way. Again, this stuff could have been, you, you had two years here where you could have been doing this stuff before he even announced, right? Instead, they waited until after he announced to do almost all of this stuff. And the, and the calendar timelines 
cannot be a coincidence at this point. Greg Price uh, pointed this out in a, in a uh, tweet that got all sorts of attention but deserves it. On June 7th, the FBI released documents to Congress alleging the Bidens took a $10 million bribe from Burisma. On June 8th, the next day, Jack Smith indicts Trump on the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Hmm, it's interesting. You have this big story that affects Biden. And the next day, a huge distraction that goes the other way. Then on July 26th, Hunter Biden goes to court and rejects a sweetheart plea deal after it was revealed the DOJ tried to give him blanket immunity from future prosecutions. The next day, Jack Smith adds more charges for Trump in the Mar-a-Lago case. On July 31st, Hunter Biden's former business partner testifies to Congress that Joe Biden was on over 20 calls with his son's business partners and that Burisma execs pressured them to fire the prosecutor. The next day, Jack Smith indicts Trump again for January 6th this time. Is that a coincidence? Do you believe it's a coincidence? Well, I will say this. It's not something that we're going to let happen, at least here. We're not going to sit here and talk only about Trump stuff and get derailed every single time. I want to go and talk about what's going on on the Biden side of things because it's really, really important. And, you know, the media is going to cover. They're going to do a lot covering everything that happens with Trump. Uh, I don't want to let this Biden stuff go by. They're trying to distract us. And the whole thing, Glenn used to talk about this all the time with the Obama administration, which seems quaint now. Uh, Watch the other hand. When a magician's doing a trick, it's the other hand you should be watching. And that's what we should be doing here. So let's watch the other hand. What are they getting? What are they trying to hide? Some new stuff has come out. Um, Now, there's a new poll out from Rasmussen. And you can tell this is actually making uh, an effect. Now, Rasmussen, the polls typically do lean a little bit to the right, but, you know, they, they get things uh, right often as well. Biden illegal cover up uh, is what they're talking about. Most say this now. The latest Rasmussen report survey found that 61 percent believe that the financial and bribery scandals linking first son Hunter Biden to his father are serious, with just 29 percent shrugging them off. Forty four percent believe the scandal is very serious and that he took part in money phone calls with Hunter Biden Uh, clients and his former partner, Devin Archer, confirmed in closed door testimony on Monday. Even 42 percent of Democrats agree with that, according to the Rasmussen survey on the question of an illegal cover up. Sixty percent believe the president is part of an illegal cover up to hide his involvement with his son Hunter's business deals. Of those, 45 percent said it's very likely and 36 percent of Democrats even agreed. Asked if, like Nixon, Joe Biden has used the weaponization of government to benefit his family and deny Congress the ability to have the oversight. 58% agreed, 43% strongly, only 35% disagreed. These are not the poll numbers you want going into an election. And I honestly think there's something going on here. I think the Democrats are starting to wake up and say, wait a minute. We've been talking about, I don't know, Joe Biden's health or his performance as president as the real thing that could sink this campaign. But they need to be ready with something else. Because if this flares up and continues to flare up like this and they keep finding stuff, I mean, we keep finding these new messages, these new emails that are shining light on, on all of these conviction or these corruption uh, accusations. And, you know, the fact that this stuff keeps coming out, it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse for the Biden administration. Here's uh, the uh, there's a few different things here. Let's go through the five key takeaways from the uh, uh, Hunter Biden uh, business dealings. This is Joe's role. Uh, we're talking about, let's see, Archer, uh, Devin Archer uh, said that Biden repeatedly spoke to Hunter business partners uh, to te- uh, to sell the brand. Um, that's something we talked about the other day. But the basic uh, outline is 20 phone calls where Hunter Biden was using his dad as the, the brand, the connection, right? 
Why do you go to someone like Hunter Biden? We keep joking about this. Well, he doesn't know Ukrainian. He doesn't know anything about the natural gas business. Why does he have this job on Burisma? Well, he has that job because of the influence, because of his last name. And we'll tell more about that here in a second. Archer's account appears to contradict Biden's claim to have had no knowledge of Hunter's business dealings. Is this thing still alive? But Joe Biden has said 100 times he's never even talked to his son about the business dealings. And now we have tons of evidence that that's not true. Hunter Biden and Burisma execs called D.C. to get Ukrainian prosecutor fired. Um, we know that, that thank God we know this, Joe Biden bragged about it at the Council of Foreign Relations and said, hey, I, yeah, that's me. Um, I got this guy fired. I withheld you, aid to Ukraine. It's amazing to hear these words now. A billion dollars to get this one guy fired. Just happens to be. The same person, Burisma, wanted fired. Uh, Archer's appearance will add fuel to Republicans' impeachment push. Well, yeah, of course it will, because it, I mean, I mean it may very well happen now. And Democrats attempted to spin, but didn't deny, this is important, Archer's account of events. They kept saying, oh, well, they're only talking about the weather. I mean, that's really what they were saying. Oh, they're only talking about the weather. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, now, this came out as well, another piece of evidence showing that this was trading on Hunter Biden's last name. Everything to do with my last name. Hunter Biden admits Chinese business relationship had nothing to do with me. This is uh, from an email now. Acquired. This is reported by National Review. Your question, why does Super Chair love me so much, is easily answered. Hunter wrote to Devin Archer, referring to Fang, a Chinese businessman, as the Super Chairman. Quote, it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with my last name. Could this be spelled out any better? Could it possibly? The first son wrote this in an email found on Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop. Regardless, if this is for real, uh, you and I have to have a long talk about how we divide things going forward. My opinion is that everything I do since we became partners is equally yours as it is mine. The younger Biden also joked in an email to Archer that Fang appeared, appreciated his entourage of very handsome Aryan godlike men. Oh, that's uh, quaint. Now, Tucker Carlson, of course, is doing his uh, show on Twitter now, at least in little segments. And he released a new episode today where he has an interview with Devin Archer. This is the guy, again, Hunter Biden's close business associate. The Democrats are trying to dismiss him, saying, oh, he's a criminal. Well, they loved him for years and years and years and years. Now he's this dangerous criminal or whatever they're trying to promote. But this is another new piece of evidence. This came out in Tucker's video today. A letter from Joe Biden to Devin Archer. Watch. We found this letter kind of amazing. It's from January 20th, 2011, which I think puts you in your late 30s, mid, mid to late right, 30s. Right, right. Okay, so you're, you're a younger man. This is from the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, to you personally, and it's personalized here at the bottom. Devin Archer, Rosemont Seneca Partners, that was your partnership with Hunter Biden in yes. Georgetown. Dear Devin, I apologize for not getting a chance to talk to you at the luncheon yesterday. I was having trouble getting away from hosting President Hu, Hu Jintang, who was yes. running China at that point. I hope I get a chance to see you again soon with Hunter. I hope you enjoyed lunch. Thanks for coming. Sincerely, Joseph R. Biden Jr. P.S. Handwritten, happy you guys are together. So there are many levels here. But here's the vice president of the United States saying to you, a man in his mid-30s, who's not a government official, I'm sorry I was occupied with the guy who runs the world's largest country. I would much rather talk to you and thank you. What was he thanking you for? Well, 
uh, you know, first of all, it's a lovely letter, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite enthusiastic. It's a little weird, though, right? Yeah. Well, it was. It, listen, it was. It was kind of the beginning of our partnership, and he was thanking me and thanking Hunter. I think at the end of the day, for bringing this idea of this government regulatory strategic advisory business into the private equity world, and I think he was excited about the prospects for Hunter, and um, you know, he was uh, just just thanking me. I think it was a nice gesture. It was a nice, for sure. For sure. Very polite. It gets a 10 on the etiquette scale. (laughs) But he's a vice president of the United States, and he's talking about foreign business deals with you and thanking you for right. that. I think, again, it, it goes back to my other, earlier point in, in, yeah, I think I hit, at the time, I think I hit the jackpot in finding the regulatory environment or company that can navigate right to the top. But, you know, obviously, as time was told, you know, being a little bit too close to the sun ends up burning you. Uh, yeah, kind of does. Uh, by the way, where was Joe Biden with all this? Well, Biden takes leisurely bike ride, a Delaware vacation home as Hunter Biden's scandal surges. Wouldn't you like to see him ride that bike? Well, you can watch. Mr. President. There he goes. And I will say he, he didn't fall over as far as we know, at least until he got to the, the trees that he may have crashed into one of them. I don't know, but. It's, it's just amazing that he doesn't have to answer for this stuff. And it's important that he does. He needs to, at the very least, lay this out. Yes, I know now that my son was using my name. Uh, that was wrong. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know anything about it. Go ahead. Make that excuse. Because the reason why he's probably not is because he knows he's going to get caught with an email or a text message of his own that shows that he was even more involved. This stuff keeps coming out, and we're not going to be derailed by all this. We're not going to just be chasing the bouncing ball that the media wants us to chase. We're going to keep on this story because it's really important, and no one else is going to cover it. You, you know, you're gonna, Maybe conservative media you will get some of it, but you're not going to get it in the mainstream media, so we'll keep digging into this and following every single development. Chris Rufo is going to join us next. You know, when you take a flight somewhere, you want to make sure your pilot knows what they're doing. You don't necessarily want to go up there yourself and fly the plane. Sometimes experts really are needed, and real estate is one of those areas. Because, you know, you ever look at that packet you're signing? You're signing your life away there. You have no idea what it is. You better have a real estate agent that you can trust, uh, someone who knows the, the market really well, who knows the area really well, who knows the ins and outs of everything going on, who can get you the best price, whether you're buying or selling a home. Uh, Glenn started a company a few years ago because he had dealt with all the hassles of buying and selling homes. It's called realestateagentsitrust.com. And they deal with only the best agents, those who are committed to working hard to bring you the best possible results. Uh, you know, I don't know. Every situation is different. You need to have someone who really knows your particular situation, get in touch with one of the agents at realestateagentsitrust.com. They'll navigate you to the right place. It's really easy, and it's a free service to you. realestateagentsitrust.com. Check it out now, realestateagentsitrust.com. As you know, just got back from vacation and just got a new book. I can't wait to dive into it. It's by Chris Rufo. You know him. He's a senior fellow for the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor for City Journal and author of the new book, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything, which you can pick up right now, just like I just did, wherever you get your books. Chris, how's it going? 
Doing very well. How are you? Really well. Uh, congratulations on the new book. Um, and, you know, it's quite a process. The book process is difficult because you put in a lot of work uh, behind the scenes. No one even knows what's going on. You're constantly slaving away for months and months and years on end. And then it comes out and you release it into a world that I don't know if America's exactly a well-read co- country at this point. So, you know, you're putting in a lot of work. Why did you write this book? Yeah, absolutely. And the the main story of the book, which is America's cultural revolution, is to document with meticulous detail um, how the radical left marched through the institutions and captured the culture with its ideologies, mostly around race and gender. And so uh, this was a huge undertaking. It took a lot of research, but it's important for conservatives to know the history of how the left took over America's cultural institutions if we want to have any sense or any ability uh, to defeat them. And so uh, uh, Americans may not be, may say, the best red country, but uh, what I do know is that the book debuted on the New York Times bestseller list uh, last week. And so the Americans uh, that are picking up books are certainly picking up copies of of this one. Yeah, I mean, it's making a huge impact. And I, I think, as your reporting has done as well over, over uh, the past few years, you know, it's interesting to look at this, though, because this sort of starts with like a failed attempt at, uh, f- through violence to take over the country, right? Like this comes from the far left deciding originally, hey, we're going to go this violent route. It doesn't really succeed. So they come up with an alternate path to kind of come through and try to, to form the country in their own vision. How does all this work? Absolutely. Well, it starts in the late 1960s when you had the fringe radical left movements uh, such as the Black Panther Party, the Communist Party USA, the Weather Underground, that were generating these ideologies that were publishing pamphlets and at that time hoping to violently overthrow the U.S. government. Uh, Those plans went sideways. And what happened is that they came up with an alternative strategy, which they called the long march to the institutions meaning that they would burrow into existing institutions that produce culture, that shape how people think, uh, and then bring their ideologies in from the outside and then slowly uh, infuse these ideologies in everyday practice. And so over the course of 50 years, they were enormously successful so that those fringe ideologies that came in those original revolutionary pamphlets are now part of your corporate HR departments, are now part of your kids' K-12 school curriculum, and of course have fully saturated America's universities. Yeah, it's interesting because I think people had this general idea, a feeling of certainly at the university level, that a lot of this stuff was going on behind the scenes. And, you know, it kind of seemed like this sort of wacky part of our world where occasionally you'd see some crazy professor say something and it was a kicker story on some news broadcast. And it wasn't until I think we got into the pandemic and we had the George Floyd summer that everyone sort of woke up and said, holy crap. I mean, this stuff is is everywhere and it doesn't seem like anyone's there to push back against it. How did all this happen? I mean, do I have that timeline right, Chris? That's right. I mean, these ideas gained power gradually over the course of decades, really while people were not looking. Um, And suddenly they were revealed to the American public during that summer of George Floyd. Uh, And that's really the key answer to to the, the, rather, rather the key question that I answer in the book. For so many people who looked around and said, wait a minute, how all of a sudden did all of these institutions uh, uh, just devour and and fall lockstep behind BLM ideology, for example? Um, The answer is not that it was random or that it was spontaneous or that it was an organic uh, kind of ricochet through the culture. This was part of a decades long plan. Uh, This is all to to the ideologies that were developed many years ago. And so uh, it's important to not just understand what's happening today, but the origins of what's happening today, let's say the origins of 
left-wing race ideology, for example. Um, and that's the story in the book. It's really never been told in a substantive way, but I think it's the crucial and untold story of our time. Uh, and that's why I think there's so much interest in the book uh, in the first week of its launch. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I think you're totally right. People are mesmerized by how all this happened seemingly so quickly. Um, let me step back from this, because I think both you and I would would agree that this ideology is toxic and terrible and against everything that our country stands for. Uh, but the tactics, the the approach here used is is a very successful one. Is, is there things for conservatives to learn from the way the left did this that we can utilize to make sure we go back to some of these more traditional American values? Yeah, absolutely. And that's really one of the things that I took away from the research for the book. And then one of the things also that I write about in the conclusion of the book, which is um, in order to understand our world, you have to understand these ideas, how they use language, how they how they attain power within institutions. And while conservatives, of course, we have to maintain our principles. um, There are certain tactical techniques uh, that we can adopt, that we can use uh, against the left. And that's something that I've done in my own political practice, fighting critical race theory, fighting gender ideology, reforming uh, DEI departments and abolishing them uh, in in public universities. Uh, And so you have to know the language of the left in order to defeat the language of the left. And so uh, we should make no apologies about it. Uh, If there are tactics that work, uh, and we can maintain our principles in, in, in using them, uh, we should absolutely uh, move forward a, a, as such. A lot of the things, uh, when I talk to people about fighting back against this, one of the, the pieces of pushback I get is it's just too big of a problem, right? Like they are so far ahead, they have so much control of, uh, of these institutions, and there's really no path. I mean, how, what are we going to do? Make the, you know, start an entire new movement. How are we going to do all this? I mean, is there, are there ways for the average person to be able to uh, kind of come to uh, some sort of path to be able to push back against this in a way that doesn't feel completely overwhelming? Yeah, I mean, the odds are stacked against us. I would be fully uh, honest to, 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 to acknowledge that. But we face a choice. Do you, do you choose uh, hope or do you choose despair? And I think that in all cases, it's always better to choose hope despite uh, obstacles. And uh, I think that it's important to just start very small and then build victories uh, upon victories. And so uh, if you're just getting involved, you're frustrated with what's happening, uh, you don't like the direction of so many institutions in the country, uh, first of all, buy the book, read the book, internalize the lessons and the arguments and the evidence of the book. Uh, and then go out into your local institutions, get involved in school boards, get involved in local campaigns, get involved in uh, the boards uh, uh, in, in your local institutions, uh, whether it's your church, your your workplace, a nonprofit group, uh, and then try to make sure that those institutions are reflecting, affirming and promoting uh, your values, because that's ultimately uh, the big question that faces us in the United States. Are we going to concede our institutions to people who oppose our values with everything they have? Or are we going to assert through the democratic process, through the governance of these institutions, uh, uh, those those classic American principles of liberty, equality, the pursuit of happiness? Um, Because if we want to have a great country, uh, we have to defend its greatest principles. And um, you can do it at the very uh, most local level, uh, all the way up to the national level. uh, And and all of it is deeply important. And I think that ultimately, Um, uh, If you choose hope, you choose uh, getting involved, that's how we turn around this country. What's your optimism level on this, Chris? Do you think the American people are ready to do this type of stuff? 
Yeah, I, I, I'm optimistic. And although I think I had moments uh, uh, in the past few years of pessimism, in recent years, it's been very exciting to see this parent movement get off the ground and really push back in K-12 schools. Just in the last few months, conservatives have flexed their economic muscles and pushed back against companies like Bud Light, warning other companies uh, that they shouldn't be uh, pushing this uh, kind of gender nonsense and, and other uh, of kind of postmodern cultural critiques in their, in their messaging. Um, and so just all in all down the line, conservatives are getting smarter. Um, I know I've worked with great governors like in, te- in Texas and in Florida uh, to abolish uh, DEI departments in public universities. There's so much that we can do, but you have to first have a great understanding of what's happening um, and how power works in the institutions uh, with which we, we must contend. So uh, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, and I think that our ultimate tool, if you're going to take away one thing from the book, is that we have majorities in many states, we have legislatures in many states. It's time to actually use democratic power to make sure that especially our public institutions uh, reflect the values of voters, reflect the values of citizens, uh, and reflect the values of uh, of the country itself. And so I'm optimistic. I wake up every day and I wouldn't be doing what I do if I if I wasn't optimistic. I like to hear that. I like to hear that somebody out there is optimistic. That's good. Um, Chris, can we go to like one of these examples, you know, uh, CRT, for example? Um, you know, I, I think people look at that with you've heard the term on Fox News or somewhere else, likely because of your work to make sure that people knew what it was. Um, and, you know, like maybe they go into Target and they see anti-racist baby on the shelves by Ibram X. Kendi. But this, go, knowing the history of this is really important. I mean, where does this go back to? Does this go back to Derek Bell? What's the starting point here? So the, the basic frame of the book and, and the basic argument in the book is that this revolution started in 1968 with people like the neo-Marxist philosopher Herbert Marcuse, um, uh, the Communist Party USA activist uh, Angela Davis, um, and, and also, of course, Harvard Law professor Derek Bell, who achieved uh, that position uh, in the late 1960s. And so um, all of this ideology that we saw, let's say in 2020, was already fully developed in the year 1968. And in some ways we haven't gotten out of this loop of 1968. We haven't broken the patterns, the language, the policies, the ideas that those left-wing radicals established so many years ago. And so I think you have to go back to the source. You have to understand the initial materials. You have to really grapple with their origins, and only then will you have all of the information that you need uh, in order to defeat it. Mm. Uh, it's really important stuff. It's really important to know the history of this if you're going to f- fight back against it. Because, you know, it's not only knowing the old stuff. It's, it's about knowing where this stuff goes next. And you learn all of this uh, in this book. I can't wait to, to read it, uh, Chris. It's Chris Rufo. The book is America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. Be sure to pick up a copy uh, yourself. And, uh, you know, if you know Chris's work, I don't have to sell it any more than this. I mean, he's done so much to make people understand what is going on in this country, and this book is the next step in that. Make sure you pick it up. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. You know, I've been doing America every night for so long. Isn't it time that I do Canada? I mean, I think it's time uh, to do Canada. We're here to do it today. And there's a bunch of crazy Canada news, which is why we needed to do a Stu Does Canada segment. Um, First of all, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, has announced his separation from his wife of 18 years. Obviously, the way you do that is on Instagram. 
Of course, Sophie and I would like to share the fact that after many meaningful and difficult conversations, we have made the decision to separate. As always, we remain a close family with deep love and respect for each other and for everything we have built and will continue to build for the well-being of our children. We ask that you respect our and their privacy. Thank you. And of course, the most obvious way to get that privacy is to announce that on Instagram. That's, of course, the way you do it. Uh, just an amazing thing. We, wore, we wish them the best, of course, um, but maybe he should be, uh, obviously he was not, apparently uh, did not work out with the, uh, with the wife, but yeah, maybe he can spend a little more time focusing on his country that's going completely insane. Um, Canada has launched new warning labels on cigarettes. We're used to this, right? The pack of cigarettes. No, they're putting the warning labels on each individual cigarette now. Yeah, it's like it's got cigarettes damage your organs. Cigarettes cause cancer. Tobacco smoke harms children. Cigarettes cause impotence. Mm, there you go. C cigarettes cause leukemia. Poison in every puff. I don't know why the other ones seem more medical than poison in every puff. Uh, so and this is as if it wasn't. Hey, look, the warning label thing. I don't think anyone really cares. Is there any smoker? I, has there ever been a smoker that has been dissuaded by the warning labels to just be like, ah, oh, you know, I was going to smoke this. I thought it was healthy. And then I saw the warning label. And not to mention, these are, you're like lighting the cigarette on fire, right? Like you're going to, it's gonna, they're going to burn away with the, with the warning labels. I mean, if you smoke it fast enough, you don't even have to read them. So that's the, that's the lesson to learn, Canadians. Make sure you do that. Now, their, their tobacco policies might not be as uh, disturbing to you as their alcohol policies. And they've got some new ones. A Quebec trucking company was ordered to reinstate a driver who was fired for drinking and driving. Now, how this works basically is a driver, uh, she was uh, drinking. She decided, even though, uh, you know, look, she really wanted to drink. And have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that moment where you're like, oh God, I need a drink? I know, I cover the news all the time. So I feel that Almost nightly. Uh, I, I need to have nine beers. Well, that's basically what she had. She had nine beers and she was driving. Uh, she got into a crash in mid-2022, actually down here in the United States. And of course, like her, the trucking company fires her and says, like, you can't be drinking while you're driving on the job. Seems like a pretty appropriate punishment. However, the judge uh, said that because the driver was an alcoholic, an accommodation should have been made for the driver. Now, I don't know what the accommodation, outside of auto-driving trucks, I don't know what the accommodation could be for who, someone who's drinking and driving um, because they're an alcoholic. Like, that's kind of their... What are you going to do? How, how would you... I mean, maybe you could put one of those alcohol monitors on the cars. I got to assume those things are probably uh, not infallible, but maybe that would help. I don't know what, what the line would be for someone in this situation. But, like... Because they're, someone's an alcoholic, I would think that would make them less appropriate to be uh, a driver, right? Like, if it's someone who made a really bad decision and had a couple of drinks and got pulled over or something, that's one thing. It's another thing. Basically, the alcoholic is saying, like, well, I routinely drink this much. That should not be a person who gets behind the wheel of a truck. Not a good idea. But, of course, how can we possibly criticize that person? I mean... I'm, I'm fascinated as well by this because you're apparently in Canada not allowed to oppose COVID mandates as a trucker. You will get thrown out of society. You can't have a bank account. You'll be prosecuted by the government because you disagree with the policies of that government. But if you want to get hammered while you're driving, totally fine in the Justin Trudeau world. Uh, wonderful. And finally, um, the Toronto police... 
are now going to shut down their in headquarters bar because there was a drunk driving crash. I guess an officer had a bunch of drinks at the bar located inside of the Toronto police headquarters, which was a thing, apparently a known thing. They had a licensed bar inside their headquarters. One of the police officers got smashed and uh, then smashed up uh, a couple of uh, vehicles as they got into a crash. I will say, do we know if this officer is an alcoholic? Because that's apparently a defense. They should be put right out on the streets again to bust other drunk drivers. Imagine being pulled over by a cop when the cop was drunk. That would be really frustrating. Like, yeah, you're giving me a ticket even though you're hammered as well. That would be really, really frustrating. But apparently completely okay in Justin Trudeau's Canada. Can't imagine why anyone would want to leave him. Now, if you decide to, let's say, print and spend eight, ten trillion dollars in a couple of years, what could possibly go wrong with that scenario? Now, I know you're thinking about all the upsides, right? Right away, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be great for everybody. But can you think of any downsides? Maybe you think of inflation, or I don't know, um, unending debt that will never be uh, repaid. Some people have looked at that and said there could be negative side effects. I, 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 look, I'm not making these things up. I just bring the news to you. Well, Fitch looked at this and decided to downgrade U.S. long-term debt rating from AA plus to AA, or from AAA to AA plus, which, okay, your, your rating system's dumb. Make it a one to 10 scale. Okay, everyone understands that. What do you mean AA plus AAA? But this is, uh, this is what they're doing. This is, of course, the second time this happened. I think it happened in 2011. And, you know, of course, obviously the White House is blaming the GOP which is what they do for everything. Uh, they are saying, even though they're not in control of the spending now, it's the Republicans' fault somehow. I will say one thing that's interesting about this is this conversation about, and Fitch mentions this, hey, you guys keep getting close to the debt ceiling not being extended, and we're scared about that, and that's part of the reason we're downgrading you. Which, of course, the Democrats say, well, that's Republicans. They're the ones that said they weren't going to raise it. Now, in this most recent circumstance, that is, of course, true. It was not true in the past. It's gone back and forth. Whoever's out of power basically is the one opposing it. But regardless, the rhetoric that goes on around that situation, where the Democrats go on TV and say, this, they're trying to make us not repay our debts, even though they know that's not going to happen. They know that's not going to be the case, but they keep saying it over and over and over again. That can't possibly help this situation, can it? We all know at the end of the day they're going to come together to a deal. This is what happens every single time. And even if they didn't for a longer period of time than it took last, uh, last runaround, there are plenty of ways that they can avoid uh, not paying, uh, not uh, going into default. That is like the last ditch thing, and it really can only happen if, if you intentionally try to make it happen. So I wonder, maybe that rhetoric is backfiring a little bit, Democrats? Maybe next time you have one of these conversations, try not to make it look as terrible as possible, because this is the result. And of course, this could make interest rates get worse. It could make uh, our debt situation get even worse if that's somehow humanly possible. Not good. These are bad things. And Bidenomics is in action once again. Well, uh, what are you going to be doing three weeks from tonight? I think I know. 
mainly I've been in your calendar. I've hacked it. No, uh, actually, it's the first debate. The first debate is coming up in three weeks from tonight. Now, one thing I want to let you know about, we got a lot of cool stuff working uh, behind the scenes uh, right now. Some cool changes to the show and some of the stuff we're going to be doing coming up. We're also going to be doing coverage, extended coverage of the debate Every single one of them. We're just going to keep doing extended coverage on YouTube. So go to our YouTube channel and subscribe now. We'll get you all the details on when we're going to do it. But it's three weeks uh, from tonight. And don't forget to subscribe to Blaze TV at blazetv.com slash stew. The promo code is stew. You'll save 10 bucks. We've got Glenn's special coming up here in just a couple of seconds.